Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. And I'm Anna. And today we're talking to you about Phantom Menace, the first of our episodes of real content. I'm super excited. And the very first Star Wars movie that I ever saw. Yeah, which is an interesting change. Most people will say that there's a different order to start in them, or even if they're watching them chronologically to to skip this one. In fact, uh, one of my coworkers, when we told him about this, or when I told him about this, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. And I find that so funny because I, I quite like this one. I think it's a <laughs> ton of fun. Uh, part of it because I watched it when I was quite young and then got the... Uh, my, my first game system was a Nintendo 64. We had the Pod Racer video game on it, which is just breathtakingly exciting. I've played it since, and the graphics are just, it's like paper cutouts moving through a colorful screen. It's pretty ugly. But let's dive right into what happens in The Phantom Menace. Yes, we are going to attempt to do the plot in 60 seconds or less. Oh, boy. Okay, Sam, you ready? All right, so uh, the Trade Federation is deciding to put an embargo on the planet of Naboo. They're blockading it in order to get a trade franchise, which is at the behest of a shadowy figure known as Darth Sidious. They go there, but then the Chancellor, Chancellor Valorum, sends two ambassadors, the Jedi's Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan, to negotiate a settlement with the Naboo. The senator for Naboo is Senator Palpatine. Sheev Palpatine. Wow, he's a good guy. (laughs) He's so nice. Oh, he's such a great senator. So Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon show up and the Trade Federation realizes that they're in over their head. They call their boss. Their boss says to kill them. And Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan manage to escape that situation by being badass Jedi. They show up and the response is essentially, oh, God, (laughs) we will not survive. Send the droid. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh. Qui-Gon and, Anna, or Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan make it to the surface with the invasion fleet, which has now been launched onto Naboo. They take separate ships for some silly reason, and then they meet up, presumably guided by the Force, and also run into Jar Jar Binks. Who, who we, will, we will talk about Jar Jar. A little bit of a controversial figure. Uh, Jar Jar Binks leads them to his home city, uh, where he is admonished for showing back up (laughs) and Qui-Gon mind tricks boss Nass who's the leader of the Gungans into giving them a bongo which is a submarine to take them through the planet's core they go through the planet's core and get to the city of Theed which is the capital of Naboo by this time the Trade Federation's droids have taken over Naboo and so the Jedi and Jar Jar show up, promptly rescue the queen. Then they escape, make it onto their ship, and fly off to the planet of Tatooine, which is instantly recognizable to, you know, everyone because it's the center of action for the whole Star Wars universe for some well, they're, reason. Well, they're forced to stop there, right? They Their right. hyperdrive is damaged and they are running out of fuel and they kind of, they don't crash land, but it's like the closest planet that they can go and be undetected and get some repairs done. Yeah, yeah. Their hyperdrive is leaking. And so they land on the outskirts of Tatooine. They get there. They meet Watto, who is a hovering dude. Twitterian. Yeah, real, real shady. Hey, nice catch. Thank you. And... Uh, he has a slave named Anakin Skywalker. Anakin is eventually 
gets them to bankroll him in a pod race using his home-built pod racer. Okay, or out of the goodness of his sweet nine-year-old heart, he wants to do them a solid. He is a very sweet, relatable nine-year-old. He's a really cute nine-year-old. And so they get aboard the pod race, and through various gambling shenanigans and trickery and Qui-Gon being kind of pretty hands-off, all things considered. A little morally ambiguous, yeah. by all accounts. And meanwhile, Obi-Wan is like, I hate sand. I'm going to hang out on this ship. I never want to see Tatooine again. Um, they perform the pod race, which is extremely exciting. And then on the way back from the pod race, uh, Darth Sidious's second-in-command, Darth Maul, attacks them. And I think that's what we're going to cover in today's episode, the first half of Phantom Menace. Yes. Yeah, so we're splitting the movies into two parts. We'll do two episodes per full-length feature film. Um, so we are pausing our rewatch of The Phantom Menace right after Qui-Gon frees Anakin from slavery. And um, they escape onto the ship? Yes. Yep. So they escape onto the Nubian and they are headed off of Tatooine. Mm-hmm. Are you impressed that I knew the ship? Yeah, well, you know, Watto says it several times. They only mention it about five times in the movie, which is why I picked up on it. In that uh, Star Wars pod racing game, he like they only have enough space on a Nintendo 64 cartridge for like four lines of dialogue. And Watto <laughs> says, oh, Nubian, to like every single part you look at. It's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's, it's embedded in my brain. That is delightful. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was not 60 seconds. That was like um, five minutes. That was like five minutes of plot. But there's a lot that happens. I think I forgot how dramatic this movie is. Yeah, this is just the first half. Yeah, so... I've got some things I want to talk about. Sam, what stood out to you? So on my first watch through of it, when I was a wee lad, uh, because I'd watched the original trilogy before, I was struck by some of the similarities as well as the differences. So starting with the first opening scene, you have the ship that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are flying in, and it looks really similar to Princess Leia's ship in episode four, although it's obviously an older model. I was also really struck with how um, I mean, particularly when this movie came out, the graphics of having the droids and those tanks like driving around the uh, Nimodians, who are the uh, Trade Federation guys, very cool, very cool. Uh, Qui Gon is a stunning figure. Just really, <laughs> he he really holds a center of the movie especially throughout this first part because he's following his own path, but it's a Jedi path. And instead of it being like light versus dark, some epic conflict as in the rest of the Star Wars universe, the first half of Phantom Menace is there's a situation. We're going to send a Jedi to go resolve the situation. And presumably he's been on a hundred missions like this and never drawn his lightsaber. So things escalated real quick for him and it got problematic. Also seeing young, young Obi-Wan, very cute. Obey. Mm-hmm. He's your <laughs> he's your guy. Um, you know what I realized I want to talk about first and foremost? So. What was the critical reception of this movie when it came out? Well, it was a huge deal. It was absolutely massive. It was the first Star Wars movie in like 16 years. And so in the preceding years, 
George Lucas had released, re-released the original trilogy several times with all these special editions. He had added in a bunch of stuff. Um, if you were to watch it on Disney Plus or whatever today, you see the special edition. And so you see some scenes that are really kind of ham-fistedly CGI'd in. And that's where the whole argument of like Han shot first came from because that got changed three times. We'll talk about that in episode four. I can see her face. She's like, wah. But um, it was huge. It was kind of surprisingly negative and surprisingly positive. General critical review, like Ebert, uh, was like, it's a good flick. It's fun. Uh, Star Wars fans were like, it's childish. And I think that that dichotomy kind of sets the tone for the prequels in the whole. Yeah. And so, okay, so we're going to start off by saying the benefit of me having watched Phantom Menace It was my first Star Wars movie. I watched it when I was 25 years old. So I came into this movie with absolutely no critical lens at all. I had no idea what to expect. I had seen exactly one scene of the original trilogy when I was probably 13. It was the uh, final piece of the battle with Ewoks in episode six. That was the extent of my exposure to Star Wars. So I walked into Phantom Menace with no chip on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm picking up on is that the general critical consensus for the prequel movies is not great. Definitely mixed. Definitely mixed. Mm -hmm. But we love them. And uh, I thought this was a delightful film. I thought pod racing was so much fun. I yelled at my computer screen at several points out of like elation and horror and despair. This was a true emotional joy ride. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. And I want to call back to the first time that we watched this movie. I was sitting on my couch. Mm -hmm. We were watching The Phantom Menace. And when it was over, I turned and looked at you. And I said, that was so much fun. So for a brand new, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed beginner Star Wars fan, I'm going to stake a claim in the ground and say The Phantom Menace was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I think, a good place to start because it makes sense in order to see the arc of all the characters. What are some things that stood out to you specifically? Ooh, okay. Or the, the, thing that, the singular thing that stood out most. The singular thing? There's a couple things that I want to talk about. The overriding visual takeaway from this movie was how beautifully the practical effects seemed to have held up over time and how much love was put into quite a bit of the CGI. So what I noticed is that the practical effects, I'm assuming the destroyers, Sam, were probably practical effects. No. No? Those were CGI? Yeah. Okay, well then tell me about the delineation of practical effects and CGI in this movie. So that was actually kind of controversial when it came out because the original trilogy is really famous for its practical effects. Yeah, of course. They're beautiful. There's a ton of CGI. Really? Jar Jar, all CGI. Well, okay. Which is impressive having like a totally CGI character back when this movie came out. The space scenes, mostly CGI with like a few in-cockpit things. Costumes were real. Lightsabers? Uh, lightsabers, I believe that they have, like, practice lightsabers that then they light up later. Wow. Yeah, this was very CGI. So this movie came out in 1999. I don't really know where we were in the CGI world at that point, but this seems like it was pretty cutting edge. Very much so, similar era to The Matrix. 
and a few other movies that were like this is one of the first big movies to have just a ton of CGI all over and it it, it did a good job. Yeah, things I noticed the Gungan City scene when Oh yeah. when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are following Jar Jar down and they look over kind of this underwater ledge and Gungan City is all lit up in these beautiful translucent bubbles. I thought to myself, that is a beautiful piece of cinematography. Mm -hmm. That is gorgeous. Yeah, super amazing. So you want to go through and and talk about some things from our notes here? Because we we both took just tons of pages of notes. I have uh, like a third of a composition notebook (laughs) filled with notes. I have three things that I really want to talk about. The first thing that I really want to talk about is Jar Jar Binks. Okay. Let's talk about the Jar Jar in the room. (laughs) What do you have to say about Jar Jar? The first time I saw Phantom was last October. And I thought Jar Jar was just a typical buffoon who had some deeply concerning racist undertones. What do you think about that assessment, Sam? I agree. There's a... um particular element of interesting colonialism when they walk into the throne, the Gungan throne room for the first time, they're talking to Boss Nass and Obi-Wan says, you and the Naboo form a symbiont circle. And I'm like, okay, how does that work? Like they probably are from here. The humans probably are not because it's not the home world of humanity. Humans spread everywhere. How is that a symbiont circle? On top of that, the accent pretty over the top. And it's, um, you know, it's sort of a humorous pigeon to, make fun of a people who are thought of as generally uncultured. But then to flip it on its head, they are, they have a bubble city underwater. They like have a very cool level of technology that's on par with the Naboo. So it's hard to say if it's like a specific call out or if it's just a, an overwrought way of showing a difference. I think it's the same thing with Watto. Uh, anyone else who speaks with a thick accent, you're trying to say, ah, yes, they're from an alien culture. How do we do that? By giving them an accent. But the accents don't always make sense. There was something that felt really icky to me about the use of accents in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because we have the Gungans who are in the text refer to themselves as less intelligent or being perceived as less intelligent than the humans of Naboo. We have Watto the Toydarian, who has a really thick accent and is portrayed in a casually malicious, opportunistic sort of way. With strong Semitic tropes. Yeah. We have Sebulba, who speaks with a thick accent, who is the antagonist of the Padres. I mean, he speaks Hatiz. Okay. That's a different language. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It comes across as sort of primal. Mm -hmm. And my sense was that there is a very white-centric point of view in this movie that is supposed to be showing an entire galaxy full of different races and types of beings. I think something interesting about that is that uh, Captain Tanaka who is uh, Padme's sort of chief of chief security guy, token black guy in the movie, just to show that yes, black people exist in space, which is kind of a, a rough thing to have. 
Uh, and then speaking of accents, you know, Padme's accent was all over the place. What was happening with her accent? <laughs> it was even her tone of voice. I thought maybe she was trying to do this sort of queenly mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. What What was going on there? No idea. But that... All of that together, all the accents, all the coding. And then you've also got the uh, Trade Federation speaking with like ridiculous East Asian accents. Yeah, it felt that everyone that you were supposed to root for in this movie was a white human. Mm -hmm. And most of the antagonists were of different races Mm -hmm. other than human. And part of that is one of the big pictures of what makes the Jedi specifically good. It's it's morally okay for a Jedi to kill a robot, right? Which, at least a droid, yeah. like a big battle droid. Sure. It, it, you'd feel bad if one of them killed R2, but like, <laughs> that's apparently still okay. Whereas um, going after people specifically seems problematic, even clones later. Hmm. Or stormtroopers. Anyway, I'm going to bring this back to Jar Jar. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate Jar Jar as much on the second rewatch. And you want to know why? Why is that? I think Jar Jar is a pretty good audience stand-in in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. And let me explain yes. myself. Yes. So the scene where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan mind trick the leader of the Gungan, the mm-hmm. king, into giving them a bongo. Mm-hmm. They are submarining through the planet's core a goober fish, yeah. which is hilarious that it is canonically called yes wait do that again that was amazing gooberfish okay that was phenomenal (laughs) things i learned today sam has a really good jar jar accent (laughs) thanks audience for facilitating this so they're they're moving through the planet's core a gooberfish tries to eat them it is then promptly eaten by an actual Loch Ness monster there's always a bigger fish which okay first of all Obi-Wan is piloting the submarine and doing a bang-up job he is incredibly chill Qui-Gon is incredibly chill Jar Jar is freaking out and I relate to that so hard there's the moment where uh Qui-Gon is like Calm down, and Jar Jar just passes out. And you goes, overdid like, it. <laughs> I, I enjoy that. It shows one of my own personal little fan theory theories, which is that like it seems like each Jedi has a set of four skills that they have, or maybe that they cultivated. And Obi Wan appears to have cultivated his mastery of mind trickery mm. from Qui Gon, because Qui Gon mm. is like doing it mm-hmm. the whole movie, the whole movie the to whole... influence everything mm-hmm. that he can. Yeah. Which, like, seems like more of a Jedi way. Like, you just kind of, you know, you don't come in and lightsaber people into pieces. You just nudge things. Kind of smooth the edges over yeah. and pull a little string here. You know, he's, he's in his prime, but he's, like, not a young man anymore. So he doesn't want to be lightsaber fighting all the time anymore. So Anyway, Jar Jar's freaking out. And I thought to myself... That is the appropriate response in this situation. I, too, would be losing my mind in this bongo. Do I think that Jar Jar is a perfect audience stand-in throughout the movie? Maybe not. He He's comedically exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially in the final battle scene, which is incredibly Wakanda-esque, which just brought me <laughs> straight forward 20 years to black panther which is yeah, pretty funny 20 years before yeah incredible he was a little 
topsy-turvy and I think I could have maybe done a better job in that scenario than Jar Jar. But I started wondering with all the Jar Jar hate, considering that in my mind, he's a he's a relatively good audience stand-in. Do you hate Jar Jar or do you hate the Jar Jar inside yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going back to, I think, a lot of people's first experience with Star Wars in the original trilogy is as a young man or you know, you're like, okay, I'm a Luke and he's a Han and you're a girl. So you have to be a Leia. It's like, which uh, type of character are you? Which mm. character are you within the series? And so you can watch this one and say, okay, well, I'm an Anakin or I'm a, you know, are you a super chill Qui-Gon? Are you Padme kind of like trying to figure out what's going on and like be flexible? Are you Anakin? Who's just like a little kid? Or are you Jar Jar? Who's like, this, this is crazy. There I was having (laughs) breakfast and all of a sudden I'm involved in this intergalactic war. Yeah. You know, that is, that is very relatable. I like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't hate him either. Uh, I think it's kind of just vituperative to go after someone because of the accent, because of the mannerisms. And in a way it shows like the full nature of the Star Wars universe. If anything, like if you do have these Jedi who are capable of extreme feats of dexterity and precise uh, activity, having someone who is just comically inept and lucky simultaneously is just a different end of the bell curve. Mm. Things that I didn't think that I would do today, wake up and defend Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) But the last thing that I'll say on this is that we get a relatively limited look at the Gungans. We basically get Jar Jar, we get the King, Mm -hmm. and we get Jar Jar's comrade in battle. Captain Tarpils. Captain Tarpils, thank Mm -hmm. you. And Jar Jar seems like a pretty morally stand-up character. I mean, he's a he's a coward and a goofball, and he's kind of annoying, but he does always seem to have his heart in the right place. He really does. Yeah. He really does. And so justice for Jar Jar Binks is all I'm going to say. <laughs> so then after escaping uh, Naboo with the queen, who does not have huge roles yet, first of all, we're introduced to R2-D2, which oh my is gosh. great. Y'all, if you knew the love in my heart, that I have for Sir R2-D2. Oh my God. I can't even talk about it. I I love R2-D2 just because like he he shows up for work. Some weird alien shows up. is like, Hey boyos. And then he's like, okay, we're getting shot at. I guess I'm going (laughs) to go outside and you fix it. And he's like moderately excited. And then they're like, Oh, Padme, go clean him up. He's like, okay. No, he's commended for his glorious performance in battle. He shows up for work. Upgrade his Ram. Like, (laughs) what does a droid do with a commendation? It's actually a great point. (laughs) We are introduced to R2-D2. We get our first classic Anakin R2-D2 mess around Mm -hmm. when they fly together in the final battle scene. Yeah. But before that, we're introduced to C-3PO on Tatooine. And there's two things at Tatooine which were extremely, well, one which was extremely controversial, one which I just don't like in this arc. And one of them is uh, C-3PO. I just don't see the need for Anakin to have created C-3PO from a literary perspective. You think they were trying to force this tie in to make it seem 
like it wraps neatly into the original trilogy, maybe? I think the actor for C-3PO, whose name escapes me, has a contract to be in all Star Wars movies. Oh. Well, what are you going to do about a contract? Yeah. So he had a pretty small role. He didn't get to carry the flag for pod racing. And then the other one is the whole concept of midichlorians is something which is new to this, and it changed the way people viewed Star Wars. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sam. Anakin was immaculately conceived by midichlorians. That is the implication. <laughs> Don't give me that look. I'm making a really weird face at <laughs> Sam right now. Um, there's other background legends stories that that may have been um, manipulated into being perhaps even by Palpatine. You think Palpatine impregnated Anakin's mom with midichlorians? I don't think that's what happened due to the Mortis arc in Clone Wars, but I mean, it's a big galaxy. Anything's possible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they said, but just the idea of midichlorians, because before that you thought, ah, oh, yes, well, I could be strong with the force. All I need to do is like focus and believe and have it. And now you're just like, Oh no, meditate. Just, mm-hmm. But now after Phantom Menace, you're like, Oh, well I may focus and meditate and be cool and trained to be a Jedi all I want, but I'll never be as powerful as some punk who was immaculately conceived by midichlorians mm. because I don't have midichlorians in my blood. You know, it's a real reversal of the anybody can be a hero trope yes. because it turns it into anybody with the right genetics can be a, a hero, which is, Unfortunately, more uh, relatable. <laughs> yeah. This is a spicy take. Uh, Dumbs to breaks. I mean, that's in that way, uh, Anakin's story is uh, a beautiful arc that he was born a slave and becomes relatively important before the end of his life. Thanks, genetics. No, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking of midi-chlorians, mm-hmm. something that I really want to talk about is Anakin's mom. Shmi Skywalker. Is Shmi even named in this movie? I've watched this movie three times now, and nowhere can I find that she is named Shmi. So every single person in the Star Wars universe has a name and a book and a comic book related to them. Well, that was not immediately evident to me when I watched The Phantom Menace for the first time. I agree. Uh, But Shmi is what she's called in the script and in the credits. Okay, that's fair. Mm -hmm. Because one of my main beefs is that Anakin's mom, one of the main female figures in this movie, was not named as best as I could tell in the movie. Yeah. So I want to talk about Anakin's mom because I had a huge about face on the way that I felt about Anakin's mom as a character between the first time I saw this movie and the second time I saw this movie. Go on. Bear with me. Sam and I are both prone to soliloquies, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a soliloquy here because I have a lot of thoughts about this. The first time I watched this movie, I thought they did Anakin's mom and women in Star Wars so dirty Mm -hmm. with this character because it feels like she is letting Anakin parent himself. Do you get that feeling? She doesn't seem to be able to control what Anakin does at all. Yeah, it's part of the difficulties of raising an exceptionally precocious youth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I found her to be mute in scenarios where I wanted her to speak up. I found her not exerting 
her will in scenarios where it felt like she really wanted to. Mm -hmm. She felt like a really passive character. And I thought that was such an unfortunate circumstance for one of the main female characters in this movie, of which there are not very many. There's two. There's Padme, there's her decoy, and there's Shmi. Mm -hmm. And there is one female pilot in the final battle scene. Yes. So what changed? Instead of putting myself in the shoes of someone watching this movie in 1999, Mm -hmm. I put myself in the shoes of someone watching this movie in 2021. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that there is a lot of progress yet to be made in gender representation in TV and film, but we are in a better place than any point in film and TV history where we have women portraying different roles I don't personally feel the need for every female character to be everything. Hmm. So what I realized is that because I'm not as starved for female representation in TV and film as I have been in previous epochs of my life, I realized that I didn't need Anakin's mom to be everything. And she could stand on her own two feet. And when I gave myself the patience and the space to realize that, It occurred to me that Anakin's mom instills him with a really deep and strong moral compass. There's this scene that I just love between Shmi and Qui-Gon where Qui-Gon says, your son gives without any thought of reward. Mm -hmm. And Shmi says it's because he knows nothing of greed. But it's also because I think she's teaching him to be a good and honorable person. And that hits me so hard in the feels knowing where Anakin ends up, but it gave me a really deep and profound respect for Anakin's mom as a character. For sure. To give a short version of of my experience with her, at first she is just a a stand-in. I mean, everybody needs a mom, but like that is literally the minimum amount of mom you can have. (laughs) Uh, But but later on, I agree with you with the, the moral background. And then with a more nuanced view and watching very carefully this last time, what point of view would you have as a parent of a child when you're both in slavery and your child has an opportunity to leave? You know, you're living in a pretty bad situation. And so you don't have that sort of do what I do conservatism of parents. In fact, you would rebel against that. And the most rebellious thing you could do is get your child to thrive. Uh, outside of the strictures of slavery, Mm. assuming you're not bound up in resentment. That's a great point. One of the most rebellious things you could do as a parent is allow your child to express themselves freely and Mm -hmm. follow their destiny. When, When you cannot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, one of the discomforts that I had the first time watching this movie was how easily she gives him up to go with Qui Gon because this is a spicy take, y'all. But Anakin goes from being a child slave to being a child soldier. Yeah, with a little bit of indignity in between. But um, (laughs) on top of that, there's the uh, she was acted really well. And I think that there's a subtlety to her acting Mm. that belies a parent's continual grief. Mm. She, to me, seems to be grieving the whole movie. And at first it's grieving because... Uh, 
you know, she has this exceptional child who's living an extremely unexceptional life. And then, you know, he's pod racing and she says, I die every time you do that. God, that hit me right in the Mm -hmm. heart. But she lets him do it anyway, because it is better to do that and to try to help others than to not. Now, then on the dark side of that, there might be elements of uh, forced mind manipulation that he's performing on her. Wow. Yeah. You think so? There might be. It's If there is, it's subtle. But on the most recent watching of it, I'm thinking, man, there's a lot of people who are doing exactly what they're told to do by force users pretty mm. subtly. This is something that I know we're going to talk about in episodes two and three. So mm. we'll lay a little groundwork here about Anakin's subtle mind control. But speaking of uh, pod racing, real, real quick, I want to talk about the introduction of Darth Maul. Yes. Because... Holy crap, Darth Maul is so cool. Okay, tell me everything. Okay, I'll tell you some. Darth, so Darth Maul shows up in his ship, which looks like a TIE fighter, which we'll see later, except it's like a big, chonky, long TIE fighter. He lands on Tatooine. He's super spooky. He sends out his little hover boys. And then he gets on the coolest motorcycle ever and rides off into the sunset of Tatooine. I'm like, I don't care if he's a bad guy. He's got the coolest ship. Let me just say it cracks me up every time they hop onto speeder bikes and go over a cliff. And then you ch- you just see them. You never see the free fall. And then they just kind of... Scoot along. Scoot along. <laughs> Pretty exciting. Yeah, just seeing Maul in action at first. Very cool. But then the next thing that happens is working on the pod racing. Oh my gosh. Pod racing gives me sweaty palms every time I watch the pod racing scene. (laughs) The first time and the most recent time I watched The Phantom Menace, I grabbed Sam's knee and just, like, wiped my sweaty palms on his jeans. (laughs) It's it's real exciting. It's a lot of fun. Tell me me what you think about pod racing. I love it. I mean, it was, like, one of the first big video games I played that I enjoyed. Uh, But it's just... It's very cool seeing... Um, like it, it helps suspend the disbelief. The, uh, you know, a jet engine is at its absolute worst close to a desert floor. (laughs) What do you mean the worst? Like in, in our, in, in the non-Star Wars universe, like having a jet engine, like, you know, in a airfield in Iraq or Afghanistan is a really bad spot for it because there's dust everywhere and it just eats away Mm. at the engine. It's not going to work. It's going to suck rocks into it. Mm. The rocks are going to make it explode. And these people are just like, oh no, we built... We just strap two jet engines onto a little cockpit and run off at 600 <laughs> miles an hour. It is incredibly thrilling and exciting. It really captured um, the excitement of Return of the Jedi, which was the previous Star Wars movie in release order, with the speeder bike scene through the Endor Forest. But it was also just... It was really exciting. Watching it the first time, you're like, oh, it's so cheesy that Anakin's really good. But they, I think they did a good job with his engineering prowess of like, ah, oh, yes, I need to like swap this, turn this on, do this, reach out, grab the, the flailing tether with my magnetic grabber hook and attach it back. Very exciting. One of the amazing things that I love about pod racing is that it also sets up the final climactic battle scene where Anakin mm-hmm. is in... His little ship. His Naboo and one starfighter. And the same thing happens where the engine's overheating and he's with R2 and he's flipping all the buttons and reconnecting and disconnecting mm-hmm. things just like in the pod racer. Yeah. And also sets the stage for Anakin Skywalker being one of the greatest pilots of the galaxy. Yes. Which is like his little 
uh, force thing. He's good with machines and he's good at piloting. Yeah, the suspension of disbelief that he's a nine-year-old who built the fastest pod ever was a little bit of a reach for me in the first rewatch. But I'm just so here for it. It is just such a fun time. I mean, there's also the element of like, you know, they're on Tatooine and there's just like crashed interstellar starships everywhere that like crashed during a drunk driving incident. And Tuscan Raiders shooting at them Mm -hmm. for fun. But like with that level of technology being pervasive, like there's definitely nine year olds who are going around taking apart internal combustion engines and rebuilding them. They're they're prodigies, but it's not completely unheard of. And if there's a whole bunch of like cool space jet engines lying around, you're like, yeah, I, these fell off a truck somewhere, and you know all I need is some spray paint, and this thing will go. And that's like kids do that, you know. And speaking of kids doing that, I think Anakin was really relatable, particularly through the first half of the movie. Yeah. He was, okay, the first time he meets Padme, are you an angel, <laughs> is one of the hardest cringes I've felt in my body mm-hmm. <laughs> in a while. But he is a really delightful small child. He's he's pretty cocky. He's cocky. He's got a big personality. Uh-huh. But like he's he has the mannerisms of a nine-year-old, you know? And I think that that was really... Really relatable. The uh, the actor who played him has been, unfortunately, like really relentlessly bullied ever since. Really? Yeah, which is quite sad because, you know, he, it's not like he wrote the dialogue. The dialogue, it's a Lucas, George Lucas special. It's not that good, but... It's not great. It is serviceable. Mm-hmm. It uh, tells you what is happening next in the plot. Mm-hmm. That's about all I can say for it. So, uh... There's some really cool stuff in the pod racing. There's a few characters who we see who we're going to see later. That's the first appearance of Jabba. Yeah. Um, it's the first appearance of Aura Singh, who is a uh, white-skinned, red-haired lady. You see her, uh, I think, in lap two, just as a bystander. I think the first lap, right when the Tuscan Raiders are opening mm-hmm. fire, you see her kind of leaning on a balcony, sort of. Yeah, I've I've paused every time and pointed her out to Anna. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see her a fair bit in uh, in Clone Wars. Full disclosure: I have no idea who she is. Yeah, that's but fine. I, I like her vibe. She's cool. She's cool. There's those cool cliff houses. The people who've got front row seats to the pod racer, the pod race course. It is like living off the interstate on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, Anakin wins, defeats Sebulba. Sebulba's got the second coolest pod. It's very unique. It's very cool. Those big V-shaped engines and stuff. One of my favorite but least favorite tropes is when the good guy, quote unquote, prevails over the quote unquote bad guy, despite the trickery. Mm-hmm. It is so frustrating to watch <laughs> Sebulba disable Anakin's engine before he even starts. Yeah. And then, you know, on the on the plus side, it makes it even more remarkable when Anakin pulls back and wins anyway. Yeah. And then as they're settling bets, as Watto is settling his bets with Qui-Gon, and Qui-Gon's like, yeah, I am going to, in fact, take Anakin. It was a fair bet, unless you want to bring it up with the Huts and Watto, like, ooh, uh, you see... Darth Maul's little floaty boy. Oh, yeah. Which means Darth His probe. Maul mm-hmm, now knows where he is. And that leads us to pretty much the end of the first half. It's really closer to about 
60% of the way through the movie. It feels like a a great moment to pause. Qui-Gon escapes from Darth Maul and he's sort of like panting mm-hmm. on the floor of the Nubian. And that's where we decided to end this half of the movie. Mm-hmm. So what Star Wars insights did you gain when you watched it about like the universe of Star Wars or, or really what other questions did you have? There's one major theme that I could not stop noticing and thinking about in this movie, which is the extent of the control that the Jedi Master has on the way that their Padawan approaches the world Mm -hmm. and their work. Mm -hmm. I cannot stop thinking about this. First of all, Qui-Gon is an incredible Jedi Knight mentor for Mm Obi-Wan. And you can tell that he is trying to impart the best of what he knows to Obi-Wan. I mean, from the very opening scene, he's cautioning Obi-Wan to what is the advice that he gives basically chill out don't uh don't let your own like anxieties cloud the situation and obi-wan says well but master yoda said this and qui-gon essentially says i'm your jedi master Mm -hmm. and and this is the way that you need to approach the world and i think this foreshadowing is going to be an absolutely critical way that i approach episodes two and three Mm -hmm. because we see qui-gon die in obi-wan's arms spoiler alert spoiler alert like 20 minutes from now (laughs) when they when they touch their foreheads together and and qui-gon dies i lost my mind i want to riff off that a little bit having watched a lot of star wars everything after episode one obi-wan's fighting style changes in episode one that's something i notice is that uh they fight with the same fighting style and I think it's it's of interesting note. It, mm-hmm. it really riffs off of what you're saying. I think that's a, a valuable insight. So the insight that I gained is that Qui-Gon is trying to impart the best of what he knows about the Jedi Code into his Padawan, Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. And Obi-Wan, spoiler alert, will have to be trying to do his best to impart the best of what he knows to Anakin as Anakin's Jedi Master. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that Qui-Gon in the text has some flaws, to put it lightly. I think Yoda says it's his defiance yeah. that keeps him from being on the Jedi Council. And Qui-Gon acknowledges that Obi-Wan has some room to grow, but he's ready to do his trial, mm-hmm. even though he has room to grow in his mastery of the Jedi way. The insight that I gained is that these flawed human beings are passing lessons from generation to generation and the flaws are deepening Mm. and we're already in episode one seeing the cracks of the jedi way on these incredibly important characters and by the same token there is like the strength because anakin is like he's been raised to be a foundationally good person He's going to continue to be raised by good people to be a good person, but he has enough power, raw, untamed Mm. power, that even the act of taming it is going to change his viewpoints on things. Mm. And I think that that is the dispassion of Jedi, which is so difficult to teach and which is something which Obi-Wan's probably 
or Qui-Gon is probably a weaker at. What insights did you get? This time around, I think learned a lot about Shmi, the nature of slavery, uh, the nature of Anakin as a child uh, growing up. It's, you know, it's become uh, a big process in my personal life for the past year and a half has been forgiveness of self and of others. And I think forgiveness of as, as a concept throughout this movie of like looking at these concepts and being willing to accept them fully to set the scene really opens up a lot of opportunities. And you can really, I mean, you can see George Lucas's greater vision as well as um, how the concept of these characters being forgiving towards each other is quite meaningful. I don't think any of them really carry on a vendetta. That's not the purpose of this arc. It is people having problems and trying to resolve them. There's... There's interesting things going on, but it's fundamentally a whole bunch of people trying to do the right thing and unfortunately escalating the situation. Mm. And I think it's a movie about growing into yourself. Very much so. Are we ready for Baywatch? What's Baywatch? What is Baywatch? I cannot pick one favorite character. I've now seen all nine of the major feature film Star Wars movies, and I cannot pick one singular favorite character. But I have favorite characters in each movie that are Bay. So who is Bay this time for the first half of Phantom Menace? God, my millennial is really showing. <laughs> Qui-Gon is the ultimate OG Bay. Qui-Gon is Bay today. Qui-Gon will be Bay tomorrow. <laughs> There's never going to be a day where Qui-Gon is not Bay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially the first out of this movie. I, I love his thing. I have a quote from him. First of all, I love how he says good friend to people. Like he says, oh, my good friend to Wado, which is a nice way of manipulating him. He is so kind mm -hmm. to Anakin's mom. He, like, lifts her. They have those camel creatures that they ride to the pod race on. Mm -hmm. And he, like, lifts her off of her camel and says, good morning. How are you? Yeah. It melted my little heart. Also, he says, uh, right when they are trying to figure out how to get parts, he's like, I'm sure a solution will present itself. And I love that attitude of just, like, things are going to work out. Don't worry about it. Don't worry so much. Every time he puts his hands on little Anakin's shoulders and does something kind or mentors him, that time that he's defending Anakin in the Jedi Council and says, I'll train him. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And it's exceptionally uh, that the size dichotomy is exceptional because he's huge. He is a very large human being yeah. and uh, Anakin is a very small uh, he, human being. <laughs> and he makes, he makes, uh, he makes Padme look small because she comes up to like his like elbows. Jar Jar must be like six, seven because Liam Neeson is a tall man. Liam Neeson is, I think six, he's tall. He's six, four, six, five. And then Jar Jar is actually just a dude with a, a hat on top. And so, like, you can see pictures of the actor who played Jar Jar, and he has, like, a Jar Jar head, so that the players, the actors would know where they should be looking, where his head is, and then the whole thing was CGI'd on top of. So, that's pretty funny. Yeah. So, that's, that's do, I, do I need to give you my receipts for why Qui-Gon is Bay? Not this time around. He represents um, kind of the last of the old breed of Jedi, because all the future stuff we see in Star Wars, especially the prequels, is 
Jedi on a war footing. He is the pure incarnation of someone who is trying to walk the mm-hmm. Jedi code. Yeah. And in a way, all of the rest of the movies are his fault. So it is funny that that's how that worked out. Without spoilers. We can we can circle back to that. Yeah. Okay, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that. The moral of the story is that Qui-Gon is Bay. He sets the standard for every favorite Star Wars character that I have from this point forward. Everyone's getting measured up against Qui-Gon. Well, I'm going to have to go with R2 because R2 is... R2... showed up to work, gets an award, gets to fly around, has fun. R2 does the most. He does the most. Every episode, we're going to have a Baywatch and just know that R2 is always on the list. It doesn't matter what movie, R2 is always on the list. Even if he's not in the movie, he's on the list. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for uh, our first episode here. And then we'll finish up with uh, what's going on next time, which is going to be the finish of Phantom Menace. Very excited. It's a very exciting space battle and ground battle and lightsaber battle. I'm filled with mingled excitement to talk about the second half of Phantom and just absolute dread. Mm, It is. It's a dark one. It's a tough one. But there's a lot of exciting battle scene to cover, so I think that'll be a lot of fun. As always, send us any of your listener holocrons, thoughts, questions, or whatever at uh, growingupskywalker at gmail.com. You can always find us on social media at growingupskywalker. If you like the show, please leave us a review on your podcast app or send it to a friend or family member or loved one who refuses to watch Star Wars with you. If you'd like to get access to some fun goodies, you are welcome to check us on Patreon and become one of our patrons. You could even get your name read on the show. Tune in next Tuesday for The Phantom Menace Part 2. Bye, y'all.